These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. We continue this week in the town of Nuzi, a small Hurrian town within the Mitanni kingdom of no particular significance. It is, in fact, that distinct lack of significance that makes it significant for archaeologists. For when the ruins of the city were discovered in relatively good condition, with a large cache of clay tablets in decent shape for us to read, we can say with some confidence that this one town is representative of small and medium-sized Hurrian towns throughout the Near East. So often in Mesopotamian history, we have royal archives about kings decreeing this and constructing that and conquering this other thing. But without looking at the outlying areas, the small towns and countrysides, it's hard to tell how much of that is the king saying things and how much of it is the machine of government actually doing things. Well, last time we saw perhaps the good side of the Mitanni government, the surprisingly reasonable and fair justice system that helped Hutia and his people on his side get their land back, the Dimtu Tower of Kazuk and the Dimtu Fields surrounding it. But at no point in history has any government ever been an unqualified good in its society. The power of being the strongest arm in a territory leads even benevolent men into dangers. But of course, the Mitanni were not benevolent philosopher kings. We already know from what little history we have of them that they were chariot warriors, taking land by force. Now, we ought not think of them as evil villains here. It certainly seems that once they took the land, they made reasonable efforts to act in a kingly fashion. But though there may have been some attempts at religious justification, which may have formed part of the Kumarbi cycle if it's to be read politically, it was never far from anyone's mind that this kingdom was founded upon violence, maintained with violence, and would only be overthrown with violence. Which, for the ancient Near East, was fine. Violence is pretty much how every modern government's established and maintains its current authority. The ancient people just didn't have all the pretty nonsense that we use to dress up our governments as though they were something other than the biggest group of thugs in our region. But of course, there's a price to be paid when building a government around quite so naked thuggery. That is, that sometimes it'll attract thugs which seems to me like the best word to describe the men we'll be looking at today. Driven by greed to use their physical strength and petty political offices to take things from the citizens of Nuzi. These texts today are a bit different than the ones yesterday, in that they don't exist as part of a clear narrative like the lawsuit did. We don't have any real sense for which of these came first or last, especially as we jump between characters, though the translations I've been using for these, which come from Maynard Paul Maidman's book called Newsy Texts, do have a bit of internal ordering that seems plausible. In fact, the very existence of these texts is a bit of a mystery, as we'll soon see. We'll begin here, though, with a man who goes by the name Kapia. Kapia is somehow associated with the city government of Nuzi, occasionally being tasked with collecting taxes, but is also engaged as a general businessman on behalf of the city. 
This is actually pretty common throughout Near East governments. Since the palaces, not just that of the kings, but also all the way down to the petty officials, tended to accumulate money, many of these men took that money and spent it on creating various productive enterprises, sometimes funding merchant ventures, sometimes creating little factories with a number of craftsmen in one building, and sometimes just engaging in the small commerce that was common to anyone of means in the Bronze Age. Capia is not particularly ambitious, but it seems he is greedy. Our first text today reads, The man named Huite asserts the following, Capia was to take 17 sheep of mine for one day, but now he has claimed that they are palace sheep. I am certain he has now given them to the palace flock and has not returned them to me. Capia asserts the following, Kapaya, Kelia's shepherd, acted as officer in charge of grazing these animals. Now, why are there three men with very similar names? They're probably his sons, maybe brothers, though they could just be a coincidence here since similar or identical names are not unknown among the Nuzi archives. Kapia continued, saying, These seventeen sheep are palace sheep and two men, Arimatka and another one, sent me to come seize these sheep. Arimatka tagged them appropriately as sheep destined for the palace, and of these seventeen, Arimatka took four to a man named Shukriya, selling them for a washbowl, then released the other sheep to the palace. Then Arimatka was questioned and said, Kipia delivered the sheep to someone and what happened next is broken in the tablet. But then he gave to Shukriya four of the seventeen sheep, then released the rest to the palace. Shukriya was then summoned, and said, Kapia took four sheep. Among those four he kept two, and released the other two to the palace. I, Shukriya, asked him when I saw this, saying, Why did you bring your milk just to dilute it with water? Now we've just started, and already things are a mess. This, like the other records, appears to be official statements, either taken in court or taken under oath and intended for later court proceedings. Huite, the victim here, is missing 17 sheep, a not insignificant loss, because, he says, he lent them to Capia for a day. Now this lending business is a bit unclear itself, Perhaps Capia, or more likely one of his subordinates, was hired as a shepherd on a daily rate, taking them out from Huite's barn in the morning and respect expected to return them in the evening. Alternately, perhaps he was paying Capia for the right to graze on the palace field for a day. It's pretty common to shift between multiple fields with sheep, only to find that they aren't returned at the end of the day. For his part, Capia appears to claim at first that these were never lent at all, but taken in taxes, which we should remember were typically taken in kind instead of paid in cash, just because there's not a lot of cash running around yet. That particular question never seems to get resolved in this tablet. Indeed, there seems to be a discrepancy with where the sheep in question have gone, with fingers getting pointed in every direction. I'm not really sure what that milk and water idiom at the end is supposed to mean, but that's the joy of foreign languages, both ancient and modern. 
Next, in the same tablet, another charge is brought up, and Capia asserted on this case the following. Arimatka sent me. He said, Why did Kiria's carts not go to the fields of the palace lands? Go and seize four of his sheep. So I went, and I took four sheep, and I delivered them to Arimatka. Two of these sheep I released to the palace fields. The other two I gave to Hutia the foreman, who slaughtered them and ate them along with all the wagoners. He didn't eat the wagoners, the wagoners ate the sheep. Now, this Hutia is probably not the same Hutia from last time, though it is possible that it was. We'll actually see at least one other Hutia today, as well as another who's listed as a carpenter in these tablets, uh, so we know it must have been at least a somewhat common name, with either two or three or maybe even more Hutias in the notes we're looking at here. In any case, Aramatka then testifies that he did in fact send Kapia, but the wagoneers deny that they ate those sheep. The matter goes unresolved in this tablet, though we're definitely starting to get a sense that things tend to not add up around this fellow Kapia. The judges think so too, for there are two more sets of testimony recorded on this particular tablet. A man named Ipshuhalu says, Shukriya, the sheep collector of the palace, came and took one of my sheep in taxes in a particular month. Then, after Shukriya left, Kapia came and took another sheep in taxes. This accusation Kapia denied, saying that he didn't take Ipshuhalu's sheep tax that month, he took it in another month when it came due. Then another matter is raised, in which a man named Zakanta asserts, I came back from the land of Hanagalbat, which is the core territory of the Mitanni kingdom, where the Mitanni capital was located, and probably where the Mitanni king ruled directly instead of through vassals, but that isn't important here. And on my way back, Kapia confiscated all of my clothes. I paid him a bribe of two homers of barley, approximately 440 liters of barley, in order to get my clothes back. Capia's reply here is a bit unclear, but seems to say, I gave one goat kid as a loan to Toltuka, and Toltuka had some sort of relation to Zakanta, and so I didn't just take Zakanta's barley, this was in payment of Toltuka's loan. That last accusation seems a bit muddled. What the connection between Toltuka and Zakanta is is unclear, as well as why all of Zakanta's clothes were taken. But apparently it was close enough for Kapia to feel justified hitting up Zakanta for Toltuka's loan. Or this could just be dissembling, since he seems to have some sketchy answers to pretty much every question put to him. Nothing is proved or concluded here. These seem to be a listing of preliminary findings only. Interestingly, it's signed by a scribe named Hutia, who's probably our best candidate for being the Hutia from last episode, and sealed by a man named Heish Teshub. But we aren't done with Kapia, and neither is the court, for he seems to have stirred up trouble again while organizing the Esheshu Festival, a monthly religious celebration of the 1st, 7th, and 15th days of the month in the lunar calendar. 
Now, this is actually an ancient Sumerian practice that's made its way into Nuzi, probably from the nearby Assyrians, and appears to have been a regular event where the government can, through taxes, support the local temples. This complaint comes from four separate hands, following an incident where Kapia goes out to collect for the Yesheshu festival. A man named Ataya begins, Kapia seized me and shouted, Deliver what you owe to the Yesheshu festival! And so I immediately sold a small field for three homers of barley, about 660 liters, took a third of that and carried it up to Kapia. But when I did, he arrested me and handed me over to the nearby town of Etesheni and stole my grain. The implication here appears to be that Ataya did in fact pay under duress, but when he went to go pay, he was arrested and Kapia took the payment for himself, making it look like Ataya was arrested for non-payment. Next up, a man whose name is unreadable said, I sold to Kapia one sheep for one homer of barley, 220 liters, but the sheep later fell ill, so Kapia took his payment of grain back and then took from my flock another sheep for himself. Another complaint with a damaged beginning seems to say that Kapia injured one of his goats, or perhaps stole it, and caused some sort of distress to two of his sheep, but when the unnamed man complained, he was arrested, and now Kapia is demanding two sheep. The last accusation in the batch is very hard to read, but also the most distressing. Someone named Nintea asserts that he was making some sort of compensation to Kapia for some reason, but then Kapia got upset and he beat Nintea, then took both the lamb they were originally disputing, then two more sheep as well. Then later in that year, for no clear reason, Kapia came back, arrested him, and stole one of his sheep. After this, we get into the fragments. Another man accusing Kapia of arresting him and taking a pig when only a sheep was owed. And then another court fact-finding where a man named Bel Abbey accused Kapia of taking more taxes than he owed and arresting him. All in all, this paints a pretty grim picture of an overzealous tax collector who's looking to profit a bit on the side from his official activities and who isn't afraid to squeeze a bit more than is owed out of the citizens. Though at this point it isn't clear if his motivation is just personal enrichment or also to look good in front of his superiors. Now this all comes to a head when Kapia is confronted by a group of Nuzi citizens in court, translated rather blandly as the Nuzi Task Force. These men assert at the opening of a hearing that Kapia took 90 sheep, he brought them to the palace, and did not turn them over to us. Kapia replied, I took 90 sheep as compensation for the carts of those Seven were prepared in the orchard, and the very men of the task force ate them all. To this, the task force insisted that they did not eat those sheep. Three other men, it isn't clear if they are or are not part of the task force, then testify that, yeah, they ate the sheep. Whatever the case with the seven eaten sheep, the Newsy Town Council then testifies about an absurd little scheme. You see... In a normal month, it appears that the Isheshu festival requires 60 sheep. 
For whatever reason, however, Kapia is in a typical month authorized to collect 150 sheep for the festival. It seems that for practical reasons, it's impossible to guarantee that exactly 60 sheep are collected. And to make sure that there are always enough, that they never go under 60, because that would offend the gods, he's given license to over-collect. However, he's expected to return the excess sheep every month. And, as this has not occurred, the task force is accusing him of selling the sheep behind their back for his own enrichment. Both the task force and Kapia speak in very confusing terms about this system, but they're overall in agreement. But then, Kapia closes out the tablet by saying the following, I do take a share, as is owed to me for my role in the festival, but I only take it from the 60 sheep that are part of the festival tally. The excess sheep are appropriated by Cushy Harpe, I do not have them sold for copper. Now, take a note of that name, Cushy Harpe, because he's a significant figure in this story of villainy. And for Capia to invoke his name in these proceedings is probably a big deal. However, we know nothing more about Capia. We don't know if there was some trial in which he was punished for these misdeeds, or if these reports were collected and sent to a higher authority who later came to clean house. Or, as is depressingly likely, if all this documentation of Capia's harassment of the citizens may have come to nothing. But this sort of low-level corruption is not the only scam being run in Nuzi. Another court complaint comes from a group of men with something of a class action complaint against Mayor Haship Apu. Now, we've already seen Haship Apu as the regional governor in the lawsuit from last week, which indicates to us that at least Haship Apu is not only going to come out of this unscathed, he's going to advance his career in the wake of this scandal. Now, the first of these men, Akap Sheni, declares that the messenger claiming to be from the palace arrived one day and demanded two sheep. Now, whether this is taxes or that he owes some sort of fine, that's unclear. However, Akap Sheni did not have the required payment, and so he went to go borrow two rams from Arimatka and then gave them to Uluya, an official of the palace. Then... In order to repay his loan, Akapsheni took a job from the mayor, Haship Apu. But it seems that Akapsheni was never paid for this job, and so he was unable to pay back his loan. And naturally, Arimatka has been hounding him. Krishi Harpe's name shows up here again, because our poor Akapsheni has been pleading with Kushi Harpe for relief, but has so far been ignored. But then, there seemed to be a chance for deliverance. For one day, Ehilip Apu, yet another mysterious man somehow connected to the local palace, arrived with two sick sheep, saying, These are Kushi Harpy's sheep. You must heal them. Now, naturally, this would have led to a bit of income for poor Akap Sheni, but the sheep died, meaning that instead of making money, he now owed two more sheep. So he ran to a neighbor and pawned off a chunk of land in exchange for two sheep, delivering them to Elip Apu. But to twist the knife further, Elip Apu denied everything in court, 
leaving our poor farmer out four sheep in total, still in debt and having sold off part of his land only to end up owing even more. We know from the testimonies around Kapia that many of the people afflicting poor Akap Sheni are in fact connected. And we see here a glimpse of a criminal network that grabs people and passes them from person to person, bleeding them every step of the way. This same document then has a few shorter, simpler accusations. One man, a roofer, stating that while he was in the course of roofing a house, he was placing the reed mats on the wooden ribs. Apparently, a standard Hurrian roof was a wood frame on which thick sheaves of reeds would be attached. Then Zilliptilla and one of Cushy Harpe's slaves came by and stole them before he could get down from the roof and stop them. Then, a man states that Mer Haship Apu had garments collected to lend to some visitors. But when the visitors left, those garments would return to the other men, but not to me. And finally, a fourth man states simply that Zilliptilla stole one of his rams, slaughtered it in his house, and ate it. There are a few more fragments in which Mer Haship Apu is accused of additional misdeeds, but these are hard to read clearly. One suggests that Hashipapu either caused a farmstead to be destroyed or that it was raided, but either way he profited from the farmland's destruction. Another suggests that Hashipapu was using Kushi Harpe's name to arrest people and take their stuff. And then, just like with Kapia, the court finally got Mayor Hashipapu to roll on Kushi Harpe. For when the mayor is accused of withholding taxes from the Mitanni king, a serious charge indeed, he states that it was on the orders of Kushi Harpe, that instead of delivering the taxes straight to the palace distributor, he instead handed them over to Kushi Harpe, under the assumption that Kushi Harpe would handle the matter. This assumption, either genuine or not, was clearly unfounded. The section at the end is badly damaged, but seems to suggest that Hashipapu thinks the goods may have been kept at the house of another man, named Hishmiteshib. But before we get to the big villain of this piece, there's one more henchman at the court that investigators are exposing. This man is Burke Ilishu, and let's let his victims speak about him. In our first case, the victim recalls, I gave six shekels of refined silver to Burke Ilishu, saying to him, Give this silver to Cushy Harpe, and let him dispose of my case. I also gave one scale of chariot mail, a piece of bronze in a standard size, as a kickback for Burke Ilishu himself. However, they did not dispose of my case. Burke Ilishu kept the entire payment for himself. Now, literally, this guy's complaining that he tried to bribe Cushy Harpe, but the guy he bribed did not deliver the bribe, so I'm not really sure there's any good guys here. But, Burke Ilishu does leave a trail of more sympathetic victims behind. A man named Anaya claims, Hatia gave one goat to me, but Kalia, the lackey of Kapia, seized it and gave, put a seal on its neck, then arrested me. Now, Burke Ilishu broke the seal while I was arrested and gave it to Kushi Harpe. Also, I owned a slave worth three talents of copper, a fairly substantial sum, yet Burke Ilishu stole him as well. 
Now, if you're having trouble keeping sympathy for a slave owner, a man named Shimatra claims that Burke Ilishu took two of his sheep and kept them, then stole his daughter-in-law for 11 months, confining her to his house. Now, this was likely more abusive than a mere imprisonment for the poor woman, though the testimony keeps it quiet, perhaps to keep the woman's shame out of public record. Another man says that Burke Ilishu took two of his sheep. Another says Burke Ilishu took one of his sheep. Another man from the nearby town of Tertia says that Burke Ilishu entered his house, stole his front door, and stripped his house bare of all belongings. Now, as comical as it may sound to imagine a burglar stripping a house so clean as to also take a door, you need to remember that a door, a large piece of wood with bronze or copper hinges, was often one of the most expensive pieces of furniture in a house. But the claims against Burke Ilishu cannot be contained in a single tablet. And as we move to the next one, we have the particular tale of Ithishta, which deserves to be read in full. Burke Ilishu took one of my brothers and imprisoned him in the town of Hashiku. After two months, he has still not been released, so two of my other brothers sent out on a journey to get him some food. They reached the Dimtu of Shilahi, where they hired a man from the regional capital of Arapa. The delivery was successful, but on the way back, they were attacked by enemies. In that attack, one brother died, but the rest of them were able to capture an enemy. Later, the father of the captured enemy came and captured a remaining brother in revenge, hoping to trade prisoners. However, further enemies had already stolen the captured enemy away, and so Ithishta was forced to offer a substantial ransom of three sheep, a fine garment, multiple mina of copper, and a bronze washbowl but then at least his brother was freed. What a mess. We easily forget what life was like even in peacetime out here, but these sorts of raids of all against all were a fact of life in the Bronze Age Near East, despite the efforts of many kingdoms to stamp out banditry. But of course, all this cost is ultimately Burke Ilishu's fault for unjustly imprisoning the brother in some distant town. We next have another odd testimony, where someone says that his brother was released from Ilku duty for the bribe of one female slave, one full oxhide, and a piece of fine wood. Presumably, Burke Ilishu is being condemned here for taking bribes, though it seems that there was no shame at all in the act of offering and paying bribes, which is curious. Doubly curious, since the next one is pretty much the opposite scenario, in which a woman says, I gave one sheep to Burke Ilishu as a bribe and told him to deal with my lawsuit against another person over some disputed land. But he did not deal with my lawsuit, and when I talked to him about it, he beat me up, he kept my sheep, he arrested me, and he stole six more minas of copper. Another man was enslaved for apparently no reason, then when he was finally allowed to go home, he was enslaved again, then sold while enslaved, and the cost of that sale was added to his own debt. Then we get a short listing of other victims of Burke Ilishu. He stole a goat and a sheep. He stole a sheep. He stole another sheep. 
he stole a mina of tin, which would have been extremely valuable, as well as a fine table and bed. He stole a bow and a large amount of barley, and he offered to buy a sheep, but then he never paid for them. Burke Ilishu, Kapia, Hashapapu, and many others are lowlifes, corrupt criminals parading around with government sanction. At least, that's if we were to take these accusations at face value. However, so many of them, pointing to such a consistent pattern of behavior, suggest that these are in fact real complaints, not just a few people throwing around accusations at a disliked figure. But these men don't exist in a vacuum, and the thing that ties them all together, or at least what the investigators writing this tablet seems to think was the root cause of all the criminal problems in Nuzi, was the man Cushy Harpe. Cushy Harpe was a former mayor of Nuzi, though by the time of this trial, at least two other mayors had been in office since then, including the current mayor, Hashipapu. However, Though Cushy Harpe no longer appears to hold an official position in the town, he seems to remain a man of distinguishment, wealth, and influence, who treats with government officials in the region and perhaps even at the national capitals. The core of the problem, it seems, is that Cushy Harpe used his time as mayor to build a network of criminals to do his bidding. The specifics are unclear, but the problem has apparently reached a head which gets us to the point of all these clay tablets. Why is it that someone is writing down all these testimonies? Who is doing this investigation? What do they hope to get out of it? There are many questions about this that we just can't answer, but I think it's pretty clear by now that what we're looking at is essentially a collection of evidence and witness statements meant for a trial. And so now we've had three henchmen, all of whom had their own substantial list of misdeeds, essentially confessing to being involved with Cushy Harpe, seemingly in an effort to lessen their own guilt. Now we have people coming forward to offer their own testimony about the former mayor's misdeeds. It begins with a man whose name we can't read, but began with a Z. Z has a mostly fragmentary list of goods, including an expensive sash and a sheep, all of which were paid as taxes through Cushy Harpe, but then apparently they were never registered as paid with the government. Where did all these things go? Kintar, of the town of Ilaneshu, offers a similar, though more complete, story, saying that one whole wagon, loaded with five shekels of good silver, a washbowl of heavy bronze, a garment, and two sheep, were taken by Zilliptilla, who then demanded that I also give barley and another sheep. Now, Kintar of Ilanishu doesn't seem to know what happened with these other goods, but he's certain that all the barley, at least, was poured out in Zilliptilla's own house, and the rest vanished on Kushiharpe's orders. Zilliptilla also arrested a certain man's brother without charge, demanding a sheep in payment for releasing him. After this, the charges start to hit Kushiharpe more directly. Nintu Atal states, Kushiharpe ousted me from my position, but after his demand to pay two shekels of gold, an ox, and two rams, I was reinstated. A man Tahia claims, Kushiharpe seized a heap of barley, 
the full yield of a decent-sized field and a bunch of straw and gave it to Hamana the carpenter, which goes to show us how this criminal enterprise operated, by keeping some happy at the expense of others. Mar Ishtar, whose name indicates that he's likely an Assyrian rather than a Hurrian, says that the gardener of Cushy Harpy took the fruits of his medium-sized field, and when Mar Ishtar confronted him about it, the gardener says that he had been authorized by the mayor to beat him up and to topple his Dimtu tower if he had any trouble, and so Mar Ishtar was forced to simply acquiesce. Another man claims that Cushy Harpe stole five of his sheep and a fine woolen garment and kept it to himself, while yet another man says that Haship Apu, on Cushy Harpe's orders, beat him up and stole a sheep. Then we get the fairly extreme tale of Waratea, who says that Shukri Teshub hired him to be a senior shepherd, but then locked him in a gate, stole one of his rams, and then released him, but then Hashipapu threw him in the workhouse as a temporary slave, and stole another of his rams while Warataya was confined there. Kapia beat Warataya's shepherd, then stole three more sheep, and to top it all off, someone came saying they were collecting taxes, grabbed way too much, including six minas of copper, a nice blanket, a whole bed, and some other stuff, and then these were delivered to Cushy Harpe, who kept them. But as bad as Warataya's experience was, the biggest victim here may have been Paya, who claims that Burke Ilishu abducted his wife. When Paya went in to rescue her, apparently not in time to prevent her from being assaulted, the would-be hero was grabbed and beaten 40 times with a rod. For the price of a mina of tin, a substantial amount of the precious metal, and two sheep, they set his wife free, but then bound him and enslaved him in the workhouse until his wife was able to deliver a substantial amount of wheat and barley, as well as a ram. Now honestly, I and this episode could go on, and one hopes that when this evidence was finally presented in its final form, the presentation really did take a shockingly, numbingly long time, especially since perhaps half the tablets just in this collection are too fragmentary to make much sense of, and there could well have been a few more tablets thrown in that we don't even have fragments from. But there are two more indictments of Cushy Harpe that I want to share with you here. One is the aforementioned Zilliptilla turning on his boss, which deserves to be read in full. Thus said Zilliptilla, Last year, Puzatu released Hummerelli by night, and I and Simitilla went and summoned her and brought her to Cushy Harpe's home. Then he had illicit sex with her. Thus said Cushy Harpe, No and no again, not a word of this is true. I did not have illicit sex with her. Thus said Paltea, I summoned Hummer Ellie and brought her to the shed of Tilinaya. Then Cushy Harpe had illicit sex with her. Thus said Cushy Harpe, It is certainly not the case that Paltea brought Hummer Ellie to the shed of Tilinaya and that I had illicit sex with her. Now, this is probably not the most important of scandals, considering what has come before, 
but it's certainly amusing and titillating in equal measure, seemingly just as scandalous then as it would be for a modern politician, again, despite the many greater crimes of said politicians. But I want to close with a final matter, one which actually may hold the answer to a lingering mystery from last week's discussion of Hutia's lawsuit. In this document, a man named Hutia, given no further information but may well be our lawyer from last time, asserts that he gave Kushiharpe two sheep as the purchasing price for some land. But then Kushiharpe kept the sheep and gave the land over to another man instead of me. Kushiharpe responds to the accusation by saying that these two sheep were given as a gift and they were not part of any sale of land to anyone. The final line before the witness seal reads, Concerning this matter, they are undertaking the ordeal by water. Now, we last discussed a trial by water way back in the series on Old Babylon, but the core of it is that the contestants line up by a river and are given a stone to hold. This stone, it seems, could be of varying size depending on the adjudicators, but if done properly, it should be decently heavy. Then, they leap into the river, going under the water, and they need to travel a certain distance under the water, holding the rock before coming up for air. There are three failure conditions, coming up too early, coming up without the rock, or drowning, each of which indicates divine disfavor. But if you can make it, then the gods support your case. Of course, from what we know, this is a process with a not insignificant fatality rate. And while it can't be stated for certain, it's possible that here is why Hatia dropped out from our previous story, perhaps at a victim of divine disfavor beneath the waters. Still, the sad truth is that we can't conclude anything for certain with the existing tablets. All these findings must have gone somewhere, possibly to a local trial, or maybe even to the local governor in Arapa, or even to the king. But ultimately, there are two possibilities for what came of all this. The first is that the trial, or perhaps even the king or governor, took one look at this massive pile of evidence and threw Kushi Harpy in jail, along with all his buddies. Of course, Bronze Age jail is not a long-term solution for criminals, and it would have been followed with charges like these for execution in the worst cases, and probably enslavement for the rest. The property would probably have been unrecoverable, since many of these things seem to have happened a long time ago, but we can hope the authorities made some attempt at restitution. Oh, more likely, they just confiscated all the wealth for themselves, satisfied for having removed these parasites from society. The other possibility is that all this meticulously collected testimony was presented in a long, long day of deliberation before the judges, governor, or maybe even representatives of the king. And after all this hard work, the authorities basically ignored it, didn't care, and gave the worst offenders maybe a slap on the wrist before allowing them to return to abusing the citizens of Nuzi. Human experience and a lack of evidence otherwise suggests that either is possible. Now this has been 
quite a listing of scams, assaults, thefts, and general malfeasance. Many people suffered in ways great and small at the hands of a number of men working together for selfish ends. But before we write off Nuzi as the Baltimore of the Mitanni Kingdom, a wretched cesspit of Bronze Age crime, it's important to consider a few things for perspective. Yes, there are a number of bad things that have been listed here, but how certain are we that all of them are true? Some seems likely, but many, particularly the shorter accounts, can reasonably be suspected of as being pylons, either to condemn an antagonist or in hopes of getting some restitution afterwards. Not necessarily fabrications, though we don't really have any way of telling a false from a true accusation here, but you know, some of these men have been complaining about unserviced bribes or things taken during arrests, or changes in taxes, which could conceivably be read as men who did legitimately owe money who were complaining about it, insisting that, oh, I was completely innocent, when in fact they may well have done something to deserve fines, imprisonment, or sanction. Additionally, even if everything written here is true as written, and even if the missing and broken parts detail even more heinous crimes, we're still looking at Newsy from a very warped perspective here. How would modern America look if you only saw it through arrest records? Even the most peaceful societies have criminals and deviants, and this long list we've seen here describes issues stretching over a decade or more. Nuzi was certainly terrorized by these thugs for however long they lasted, and we can't understand the people of the Bronze Age without realizing that this sort of crime was in fact endemic, but it would be no good at all to overstate the degree to which this sort of corruption affected people's lives. It seems to me that crime would have been a concern to the people of any town in the Bronze Age Near East, both banditry and this more official sort of harassment, but people still managed to mostly get on with their lives, take the hits when they had to, and continue living. No one, after all, ever said that the Bronze Age was easy living. These towns must have been intensely boring, with little to do aside from work and gossip for most folks. As we've seen just from the lists of things stolen, Newsy must have been a bit like New Zealand, a region with more sheep than people. But daily life continued, and crime was just another part of that. But now it's time to switch gears again. Having looked pretty thoroughly at some aspects of North Near Eastern culture and life, it's finally time to begin the grand tale of late Bronze Age politics time of chariot warfare and high-stakes diplomacy. So join us next time as we re-found a city that's lay in ruins for a hundred years and 17 episodes. The city which will come to define Mesopotamia for the next thousand years, great and glorious Babylon. Thank you for listening.